Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Fan Fuel, a podcast where fans fuel talk about motorsports. Today, we'll be talking about mysteries in racing. This topic was brought up by our host, Nathan Ball, on Twitter, where he posted a thread of about three different racing mysteries. We found some others along the way while we've been doing a little bit of research on the topic, and we'll be happy to talk about it today. Uh, but first, myself, Alex Harrington, Nathan Ball, as mentioned before, and our newest host, Colton Cranmore, will be talking about this weekend action across the world. Let's start with F1. It was the race in Imola, which we discussed last time about qualifying being a little bit more important than Sunday's race. Did you guys find that to be true after watching on Sunday? It played a big importance. Usually that's a Saturday track, and the rain kind of put Hamilton in the mix during the race until he went off because he was actually faster than Verstappen at the end of every stint. And I don't know if he would have been able to do that if the track was dry. Yeah, I don't know um, if he had anything for Max, like you said, if if they were in the dry. But I don't understand how the man can catch such a massive break. I mean, he, he spins and he still comes out to finish on the podium and is now tied. Well, excuse me, not tied. He has a one-point lead due to having the fastest lap in the championship with Max. And the commentators were talking about how this is going to be a pretty cutthroat battle between the two this season and i'm looking forward to something like that happening i don't know if you guys think that'll be true or if you think later on in the season mercedes will pick up where mercedes has always left off it feels like and just ride up the point score and totally dominate the rest of the season it'll Mm -hmm. it'll be interesting to see as the year goes on um i think it's a good sign this early in the year that we're having this kind of competition between the two um granted i don't follow formula one near as closely as you guys do um, but I can't even remember the last time we had a legitimate battle between anyone and Lewis Hamilton for the points. It's I know it's been at least a few years. Yeah, this so, is gonna be really interesting. Yeah, so it was it was an interesting race to say the least. Um, just because of the rain and the differing conditions, but I will I will say this: it definitely wasn't the show of the weekend. So when we were closing off. Uh, Sky Sports said a little bit in their outro about the race in IndyCar, and they were wishing Roman Grosjean a good luck and a good race in IndyCar. And he was one of three guys that we saw and talked about last week that were coming in in the rookie class alongside Scott McLaughlin and Jimmy Johnson, who all did pretty decently other than Roman because he got collected in a lap one crash. So, what did you guys see? I know, Colton, you and Nathan were pretty excited when we got on before we started recording about this weekend's action in Birmingham. Yeah, I was really excited about IndyCar in general because, as you saw with Sunday, they rarely put on a bad race. and They're not necessarily um, a series, I guess, when it comes to big names. They're not, but now they are with the three rookies, but... I've always thought of it as a, a series for a peers. Like, if you're just looking for good racing, then that's a series to go to because it seems like no matter who's in the cars, the racing is always good. And now they've had the mix of they have a great driver lineup and they have a great package that they're using right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, I loved it. Um, like we were talking last week, um, I didn't even know that 
Barber Motorsports was even a track until this last year with the COVID thing. Um, and even at that, I hadn't seen very many IndyCar races in my life outside of the Indy 500. Um, so I was super stoked to get it, get the season kicked off. And that, that was, that was fantastic racing. I mean, I was glued to my seat pretty much the whole 90 laps, barring that little caution that they had off lap one. Um, but man, I, I thought it was, it was great. I love to see the strategies play out over a super long run. Um, we didn't see the manufactured cautions like I'm used to at NASCAR. Um, it was, it was, it was fantastic. Loved it. Can't wait for the next one. Yeah. And, and it was, it was really decent. I wish we would have gotten more, uh, from, from it. I think we would have, if we didn't have that lap one caution, I mean, you saw guys like no Joseph Newgarden get taken out and, and that just kind of shunted a little bit of the strategy in my, in in my opinion, because we had a little bit less race time under green than we would have if we had the full 90 laps. And I think guys like the pole sitter, Pato Award, uh, who did a three lap, or excuse me, a three stop strategy would have had a lot better time with actually fighting for a win on their varying strategy. Because it seemed like he and some of the others that were on the three stop strategies were always faster than the leaders, but they could never catch them because the pit time was always just too much of a penalty to overcome based on track position oh yeah i would definitely agree with you i think that towards the end it seemed like all three of them were very identical in pace the top three at least um dixon as well was pretty close but i think what kind of made the difference with that is after they chose three stops is that hello was kind of on i mean he was on a tear if you look at his laps he pretty much ran the perfect race. He didn't have any mistakes. He, he was consistent every single lap. He didn't fall off. He had, he had perfect pace, and I think that had he wavered a little bit or had he fallen off a little bit, it probably would have been an easy win for power, but the fact that he didn't make a single mistake all day gave him just enough. Yeah, and I was hoping they they would have tacked on like an extra five laps or something at the end. Yeah, because um, I mean, Pato Award was he was coming fast too at the very end. Um, I was sitting there watching that ticker the last few laps, and man, he was over a second quicker at one point each lap. So yeah, it, I mean, it was super cool to see their flat strategies play out like that. I want to say that race used to be 110 laps. I feel like in in my memory bank, I have that as as a thing, but. I mean, Nathan, you've probably paid a little bit more attention to the road courses in Indy than I have, so you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I really feel like that race and St. Pete have always been 110 laps up until a few years ago uh, in regards to Barber. I'm not sure about the lap count. Um, I know St. Pete's usually shorter than that just because it's a street circuit. And there's, I mean, obviously there's a lot of caution with street circuits, so... Um, I, I don't know, but I do think with another 10 laps, it probably would have ended up being power gets around Polo, and if a ward could have got around, see, like, the winner would have been whoever whoever can piece together the last bit of the race, because I'm sure a ward would have had Polo first before that power. I'm wondering Still, if... I'm wondering if Pinsky kind of cooled Will Power down a little bit, just because of what happened with Joseph Newgarden at the front and they already had one car just out of the race because he had about 90 seconds worth of push to pass with two laps to go 
and it didn't seem like he even had enough time to burn it. And I feel like if he'd have been using it that last, I don't know, eight to ten laps, he probably would have caught Alex Palou and, and, and beat him. Oh, man, it's tough to tell. I mean, I thought it was an easy, a decent start because he's one of the greatest one-lap drivers in the series history. He might be the greatest one-lap driver in 90 laps is, or not, not 90 seconds is probably close to a full lap. So if you think about it, if he he knows that Polo is going to kind of be a little more conservative on the last lap. So if he figures when he's being conservative, why don't I just burn all of it right now and see if I can get up to him? And he gained at least five or six tenths on that last lap alone. So if it wasn't for whatever happened to him on the second to last lap, I don't, I'm assuming it's a missed corner and it might've worked just because of how good power is when he one lap, he's always good with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was expecting a little bit closer battle towards that, the last couple laps. Um, but like you said, it, it's hard to say what happened to power, um, whether he missed a corner or something there. Um, I did look it up while you guys were talking and it has always been 90 laps at Barber. Well, my memory ceases, uh, to just exist, I guess, uh, because I swear, <laughs> I swear to you, I remember when that race came on the, on the map, I want to say it was around the 2008 season that it was 110 laps. I swear to you, I can remember watching race replays and stuff like that, but I guess I have been proven wrong yet again. Um, but that's all right. Uh, um, well... To to speak on on something else that happened, we had the trucks on Saturday at Richmond, and I was not able to watch because I rode up the hour and a half to get to Atlanta Motor Speedway to watch Supercross, and I had a really fun time there. So I'm wondering if you guys had as much fun watching that truck race as I did Supercross. It was okay. I didn't necessarily watch the full race. I was kind of in and out of paying attention to it, but I thought the ending was all right. Bush yeah, was pretty I, close to Nemechek, and that was really all I remember. Yeah, um, the ending was the ending was all right. The rest of the race was, I mean, fairly forgettable. Um, what I wanted to, to point out that I saw during the race was the, the amount of experience or the amount of, I, I don't know, I guess, talent that a year in the cup does for drivers because john hunter was i mean he was driving like a pro towards the end trying to hold off kyle bush there um and i don't think you would have seen that kind of a battle had it been a truck series driver leading the pack towards the end um so i was super impressed with that just to see how much a year in cup really helps guys well i had a question about that um to myself and i know the guys on positive regression they did a, a piece on it in one of their previous episodes but what what really is worth the move down to trucks for John Hunter Nemechek? Because he's not doing anything with talent that's above his level. So I don't think he's learning anything. We knew that when he was driving a Nimco truck, he was overdriving in it. We knew that when he was in a CGR car in Xfinity, he was overdriving it. So we also knew last year that he was overdriving... The front 48. row motorsports car. So, what what worth is it to know that hey this this kid can outdrive the equipment he's in? So, 
for John Hunter Nemechek, what is the point of going back down to trucks? And mm -hmm. if he if he doesn't win enough, is is that going to look bad on his situation for getting back to Cup? Well, I feel like the reason that he wanted to go down there is sort of uh, he's had to push so hard in the last few years to to kind of get underfunded equipment toward the front, and that's why. Nemechek had one of the higher crash frequencies of all the cup drivers last year. Not to say he wasn't talented, but I don't blame him for having to push those cars as hard as he did. Now that he's in a series where he's in a top car or truck, per se, but he's in a truck that can contend every single week now, so he doesn't have to drive like a madman. So naturally, it's kind of come easy to him, and I think he went down to that series knowing that he wants to show everyone what he can do when he doesn't have to drive the wheels off the car. And so far it's working out because he's, he wanted to track with extremely high tire wear, long runs, all that kind of stuff. He's, I guess he's proving his discipline because he's already proved his ability. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. And I'm wondering if either a, um, that wasn't a conversation he had with Kyle Busch when he signed to KBM was like, Hey, you know, you don't have to overdrive this stuff now or B if it's a confidence boost for him, um, that he knows he can get it done. You know, he, I mean, hell, he almost won that Talladega race last year in the cup series. Um, so he knows he has what it takes to, to drive. Well, um, I think more of a, a career path. It's, it's more just a reset. I mean, it's more fun to win races in the truck series whether you're running two, three, five a year, than it is to run mid to the back of the pack in a cup car. And so I think that's kind of a boost for him. Um, plus it gives him kind of a, a different stepping stone up the ladder again. Um, so now he knows what it takes to get up those levels. So he can do what he needs to to get those good rides coming up. And he doesn't have to scrounge for you know the bottom feeder cars. Um, who knows, maybe in five years we'll see John Hunter in a Stuart Haas car. I think it's going to be very interesting to see where his career goes because it could go anywhere depending on what he does in trucks. Well, I'm going to have to take the argument elsewhere uh, because I see what you guys are saying, but I've, I've got this this feeling that the next-gen car, while it is going to be potentially and hopefully harder to drive, it should be easier to build and maintain on the team so i feel like if he'd have stayed another year even if you want to call it a lame duck year or another year where he's crashing more than any other driver in cup he's got a seat for a potential race winning program because when that clean slate comes they're trying to press all the cup teams into a very small box and only have a few standout drivers based on their talent rather than their equipment. So if that happens, has he put himself too far down the ladder to where guys like Noah Gragson, Austin Sendrick, even maybe cheaper to run drivers like Ryan Vargas or, or some of that nature can get those cup rides with the smaller teams because it's, they don't need to pay out these drivers because they can perform cheaper, if if that makes sense. I don't know if you're if you're following what I'm saying, but right. has he like for me has he hurt himself because of the next gen car making it a little bit cheaper in cup? So maybe there's going to be easier ways to get more drivers up there 
and he's not sealed himself a spot in the future. Yeah, I'm interested. I think that um, I think that he'll be okay. I won't guarantee anything, but I would I would be very surprised if he doesn't find a ride that's at least capable, at least good enough to run toward the front. And I mean, and who Steven say he wants to run Cup for his whole career? Maybe he he would rather take the Matt Craft and Johnny Sauter route to where he just races the lower series and kind of you know fills in for Cup guys or you know the one off rides here and there. I mean, not everyone has to be a lead actor. You can still make pretty damn good money being supporting. Um, and so that's kind of why what I'm looking at with John Hunter is maybe he just wants a career in NASCAR and isn't really concerned with where so long as he's winning. You know, I hadn't really thought of that. Um, I guess you could say that's kind of like a Elliot Sadler slash Justin Allgaier route yeah. as well. Um, and if you're going to go based on competition, the truck series is definitely more competitive, in my opinion, than Xfinity. So... I could definitely see where your point is probably what he was thinking if it's a long-term thing. Uh, but if he's trying to get back to Cup, I, I don't see how this is a, a good idea at all. I don't know. Yeah. Either way, we're we're going to be arguing about this till the cows come home, so I guess I have no yeah. idea how to predict his career. Yeah. I mean, it's we'll just have to watch and see. Uh, uh, hopefully he'll wind up getting five to seven wins and – really showing out saying hey i can i can do this and i can do it well maybe he goes back to xfinity maybe he gets a jgr ride maybe he doesn't maybe he gets the rumored uh second 23xi team next year and just rolls off in that next gen car uh like nothing happened uh and he just collected trophies this year i don't know uh but moving on to sunday's race it was right up against the indycar race which i know uh a bunch of us fans were really annoyed with because uh in my in my opinion the richmond race could have been saturday night like it had been for so long uh and then also jimmy johnson being an indycar is going to pull viewers to indycar so it was really a lose-lose situation for both series i don't know how you guys feel about that but i think it was a bad decision from both tv partners and series alike yeah i just i don't know what to say to be honest about the cup race I feel like it's it was a great race. I don't understand why people were trashing on it, I guess. Well, I yep. mean, I would say it was a good race for Richmond standards, uh, but it's still Richmond, and that racetrack really hasn't been that great since we went to the Gen 6 platform. Yeah, yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Um, I just want to say, whoever planned the schedule of Indy and Cup at the same time um, I don't know who had the, the time set first. I'd assume the Cup Series did. Um, but someone needs a talking to or fired because that was yeah. – I mean, I was trying to flip back and forth for a while and then just kind of said F it and went straight over to IndyCar. Um, but it was – I mean, that was that was super disappointing. I feel like they could have moved one race, you know, like you said, oh, Richmond sure. Saturday night, um, or even run IndyCar a couple hours earlier. I mean, even with COVID last year, they didn't even – changed over schedule for the Indy 500, so it's pretty pretty crazy to think about it. Yeah. Yeah, and that was bold as then, because there's no way in hell I'm going to skip out on the Indy 500 to watch a, a dumb old stock car race. Uh, and, yeah. and I'll say that as a, a pure NASCAR fan, but I don't know. It was a bad decision. I feel like IndyCar has 
has done well at 12 o'clock time, so maybe they could have done that if they just had to have the cup race on Sunday. But then again, Richmond's got lights. It's a night track. It's not really going to be very much better just because of the, the cars in the day. So I, I don't know. The only thing that I think that they could do uh, to make Richmond, quote-unquote, more exciting is uh, put the sealer back on the track. But I don't know if you guys have that same opinion or not uh, because I remember when they were doing that in the 90s and the early 2000s, it really lived up to that, the action track, as its nickname. Yeah, um, it's interesting to me because I think that it's more of a long-run track. It's really abrasive on tires if it's daytime conditions, as you saw last week. Um, it's a shame that people are... They're saying it's not a good race. I thought it was a good race just because there were three or four cars that were kind of equal pace. And there were a lot of long runs. You got to see it play out naturally, which was very nice. Um, it wasn't it wasn't like Martinsville where there was attrition and all that stuff, but it was still a decent race. Yeah, I miss old Richmond. Um, and like you mentioned with the long run cars, or with the long run, being at long run track, um, I don't know what they can do to kind of fix the track to be honest i've never been a huge fan of richmond to begin with my whole life it was always just kind of a meh track to me i mean so i wasn't terribly excited about this weekend anyway um but it was definitely interesting to see the strategies play out and the penalties kind of kind of play a factor towards the end of the race well uh maybe they don't have to do anything to richmond um you know uh we got a winner that we weren't expecting in Alex Bowman and he seems to kill racetracks so maybe you don't have to worry about them fixing anything and maybe they can replace that mad racetrack with another one um but speaking on that note we did see a pretty dominant performance uh, by Denny Hamlin and a late race caution kind of goofed that all up for him and what was looking to be a pretty decent battle at the end of the race so, I guess, what are your guys' thoughts on that? Because I, I feel like the last stage was pretty good, but that last caution kind of ruined the race for me. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that because it was very interesting. Logano pretty much drove by Hamlin on the long run. And then once they made their final pit stops, Hamlin actually reeled him back in. Which was pretty cool. And they were side-by-side side for quite a while. And sure enough, the caution comes in changed the whole complexion of the race because obviously Bowman had the short run car. He he hooked together a few laps and that was it. I just wish that we would have been able to see the end result of Hamlin versus Logano. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Um, I thought the very the very finish of the race was, I mean, it was exciting, um, but at the same time, I'd still I'd still like to see a full hundred lap run play out at one of these tracks. I mean, one of these days. Okay. Um, cause it was an exciting finish, but it wasn't the same kind of exciting that it would have been seeing that run play out. Yeah. And I'm wondering if, if we go and look back at some of these races that we're talking about that were exciting at Richmond, I, I think of how, uh, maybe not during the debris caution era, but how they always had long runs, but they still had exciting racing. I'm wondering if the stage cautions, I know uh, that we might not have seen a natural caution. I wonder if them not being there and then having just paying points on X lap, if that could potentially fix something about a long run track like Richmond because you'd have to strategize for that specific lap if you wanted the playoff point or the or the 
other points that come along with being in the top 10. Oh, I feel like road courses, that's what hurts a road course because it seems like drivers either have to go for stage points or they go for the race win and can't do both. And that's sort of what kind of eliminates the strategy in a road course because they all have to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. but in the 400 lap race on a D-shaped three-quarter mile track, does does that hinder the fact that we're not seeing those strategy battles that this track could produce oh man this is tough um i don't i don't know how to i don't know how to fix it nor do i necessarily think anything wrong with it i just think that it's sort of like a new hampshire type track where it's very difficult for the drivers because it's a disciplined track but it's not outwardly exciting because it's not it's not like bristol or martinsville where we're getting constant battles and contact yeah and and i'll always be a fan of no cautions at the end of the stage. Um, the point of the stages, from what I gathered when they made them, was to reward the drivers who do do good the whole race, not just towards the end. Um, but at the same time, you shouldn't just throw off all strategy in the race um, just to reward those drivers. Um, I think Richmond's a good example. The road courses are a great example. Or even tracks like Michigan Pocono, where we used to see these excellent fuel mileage battles and long runs play out. Um, we're really kind of losing that here. I mean, I think I'm on the boat of if NASCAR is going to throw a caution at the end of the stages, it should only be at Ta- Daytona and Talladega. I, that's a great idea. I fully agree. Even then, I don't know, because if you go back and look at, what was it, the 2001 fall race at Talladega was the last one that didn't spring have any race. cautions? Spring race, it spring, yeah. It was a spring spring race? Mm-hmm. That race was really exciting to me, and the pack got split up every time they did pit cycling. Now, of course, it'd be a little bit different nowadays because we have more manufacturer's orders than we did in that day, but they would come back together, people would jostle for position, and then 35 laps later, they'd separate, go down pit road, come back together, and it was just like an ebb and flow that was so elegant, but also you could tell that they were racing extremely hard and it was like pure, I don't know, luck or just a display of such talent that was going on. I was just in awe of the fact that no one ever wrecked. And and I've watched that race multiple times and it's one of my favorite races to go back and watch. So I don't even know that I would put cautions on, on the stages at Daytona and Talladega. Now, most likely... If you're going for stage points, we're going to probably make a caution, whether we want it or not, at the end of the stage. Uh, but that's a totally different argument. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like I said, I'm a fan of no stage cautions, period. Um, but I want to put an asterisk, like, if they absolutely have to, those are the only two tracks I'd want them at. And even then, it's still kind of bitter taste in my mouth whenever they do throw the caution. Yeah. Well, I doubt that NASCAR is going to go back on it because – like you know we've seen for the past 18 19 years now they can't make a wrong move um and they can't go back on it unless we're talking about uh the caution clock but they really didn't go back on that they just made stages so that's how we got where we are uh but moving on um we can start to talk about today's topic and uh nathan uh since this is kind of your baby uh I'll let you go ahead and start with something uh, that you thought was pretty uh, interesting uh, and 
lead us off on our first mysteries in racing topic. Well, yeah. First of all, I had a Twitter thread that where I went down a rabbit hole and I just interesting things in racing that kind of have an unsolved aspect to them is in either they do have the information and it wasn't released in the public or they don't have the information, period. And with that being said, the first one that somebody commented on my thread was they talked about the Jeff Gordon 2008 Las Vegas crash because obviously it is known that it was one of the hardest hits in history up to up until the modern era. And thinking about that, they had an in-car camera from the onboard that they didn't elect to show because they thought it was quote-unquote graphic, which is really interesting because they they thought that the way his body moved was disturbing. Um, I'm curious to know whether his head hit the steering wheel maybe or whether or not his body reacted in a sort of way that that they didn't like because I've heard football players talk about they can hear when the wind gets knocked out of them. And, you know, it makes you wonder, was he able to hear that or see something? It's very curious. It all came from someone named Keith Merrick on Twitter. Um, go follow him if you haven't already because he's sort of the one that made the thread blow up. Yeah, and it's interesting. When they, when they show that wreck and you can just see – uh, it's kind of like those wrecks on the back straightaways from uh, Talladega and Daytona with Danica Patrick. And I'm wondering if Gordon moved in a similar way as to when they show the onboards with her and she just jolts forward. I don't know if it was even more violent than that. But um, the clip of the article that, that Keith posted was saying that he hit an entrance gate on the back straightaway inside wall. There was obviously no safer barriers. That was kind of one of the last um, wrecks that instated safer barriers on inside walls. Um, but I remember him gingerly getting out of that car that day. And if I remember correctly, um, that's when his career seemed to start going from being a solid contender every week to most of the time and not all the time and it was that that accident to me was kind of an eclipsing of he went from being on top to starting to go down that slope and i don't know if it was because of whatever was sustained then i don't yeah know whether or not the back oh sorry i don't i don't know whether or not the back problem stemmed specifically from that crash or not but i'd be very curious to see what happened inside the car he did say quote unquote he could feel his organs being thrown forward so it was obviously a huge hit to even be able to feel that sensation but i don't know if it necessarily i don't think it altered his mindset at all but it's obviously a very very hard hit um thinking of it now it's it was easily his hardest hit of his whole career he's lucky that he hit it an angle where the car could spin around and dissipate energy because if it didn't it would have been a lot worse yeah and i heard you mention that maybe his head hit the steering wheel um nascar is really good about sweeping those kind of impacts under the rug. Um, one that sticks out to me is I have a, a big history of NASCAR book. Um, mm -hmm. And towards the back, it shows a picture of Kyle Busch hitting the inside wall at Daytona when he broke his ankle. Um, and Kyle Busch was quoted as saying, when he hit the wall, both his chest and his helmet hit the steering wheel. Oh, yeah. And Without a doubt. I know that 
um, either you or someone else had commented about Larson's crash at Talladega where Larson came out and said when he hit the inside wall while he was rolling, his head hit the steering wheel. And we've never heard anything like that from NASCAR. So they're really good about sweeping these big hard hits under the rug and saying, man, that was just a hard hit. Look at the safety. While the drivers are usually ones that step out and say things like, Mm -hmm. whoa, wait a minute. This was still really bad, even though I walked out. Yeah. um, I I do remember Austin Terrio had a wreck at Vegas where he was kind of pushed into the outside wall head on at the concrete part of the track. Um, no, it was similar, like a one o'clock angle, no rotation at all. Not all energy was right to him. And he said that his Hans device broke, his head hit the steering wheel. Pieces and, yeah, of the transmission came into the cockpit and cut his arms. And he said that he never really, they NASCAR said that they'd never had that happen before. So chances are, if he didn't just say it, and if he didn't say it at all, then we probably would have never known. Yeah, and Terrio hit so hard. I remember reading in an article that he said his head bent the steering wheel. Yeah, he did. That's and how he said the helmet, the helmet had a little hit. bit of a... Now, I yeah. have a question. So all these incidents, we we're saying that these guys are flung forward and stuff. Now, I, I get that the dissipation of energy is one thing. You hit the wall, your body's still moving at the same rate of speed, but the car's stopping, so that makes more G-forces and stuff like that. But we have safety equipment with a six-point harness and the Hans device. Obviously, you say Terriot's broke, but why are these safety harnesses not Mm. holding these drivers into the seat? Are they slipping? Um, I know we've we've heard about... well, I know we've we've heard about people getting blisters and stuff uh, on their shoulders from the harnesses and stuff. So one thing that I think gets overlooked with impacts like these, um, I, I do talk to a lot of racing drivers who have firsthand mm-hmm. experience with super hard hits, um, is that when you have an impact, especially at those G-forces, your seatbelts stretch and the bolts in the car stretch because you got to think everything in the car yeah. goes from moving – 170 180 miles an hour to zero and so all that inertia not just with the car itself but i mean you're talking the steering wheel is still having to stop and that's why it's easier to bend something when you're moving quick um i mean you're talking about seat belts have a certain stretch rating that they're allowed um and we you know if you move past that to the belts and to the actual framework of the car it's going to move a little bit um so you compound all those together and that's where you get the head hitting the steering wheel and things like that um, even if you go on and you look at, you know, uh, FAQs for the seatbelts, whether it be Simpson or Impact or which have you, um, they say to replace them after every moderate to severe impact because they do stretch out and they become a little bit weaker after that. That's a really, really good point. Um, I had never really thought about the belt stretching, but now that you mentioned it, it makes perfect sense because you don't want any more stretch than the belts allow. Because the belt's allowing for a tiny bit of stretch isn't, isn't a bad thing per se. If your organs are moving around, it kind of prevents a complete yeah, and, and it's stop. Just, and it's just natural they're going to do that under that much pressure. Yeah, because well, if you, you multiply the force, you know, say your body weight, if you're 170 pounds and say you hit 80 Gs and you multiply that, that's a lot of weight that's being pushed on those belts. Yeah. Yeah, well, Colton, you just basically answered my question. Like, 
So I was thinking maybe the belts are come are coming loose or the you know the mechanism to keep them tight is is failing or the bolts that are bolting the seat to the frame are are not as good as they could be but you're just you just I mean you answered it they're they're getting a lot of load on them and they're just not able to handle it and so they just bend or stretch so yeah a plus for that because you and <laughs> answered my only yeah. question that I'll send a you great, guys a, a good video that I found. Um, it's of an NHRA throttle brick when they're um, they're running the engine in the pits, mm-hmm. and you see this guy standing back behind the engine, and they blip the throttle really quick to put it up to full power, and you can actually see the whole engine on all the bolts that it's on stretching, and then the crew goes in and tightens everything down again. So I'll send you guys that. It's a it's a really cool video to kind of see that in action. And it's the only one I found that actually shows it, and it's it's super quick. You really got to pay attention. Yeah, we but, can put it on the on the yeah. Twitter, and we'll we'll let everybody else see it uh, after they get done listening to to this episode. Um, but you just yeah, you just basically just blew my my, my mind, Colton. Because even you know, being someone who's studied physics in in college, like that wasn't even anything that came to my mind. Um, but I know Nathan, you had uh, another one that we both looked at uh, on your thread, and that was uh, the Alonzo 2015 testing crash uh, that caused him to miss the opening round of that year. I was I was wondering about that because I actually don't remember it. I don't know if that was when I was kind of still in my yes and no uh, picking stage of whether I'm an F1 fan or not. Uh, but I don't actually remember that. So if you could just kind of uh, refresh all of our memories. Okay. Yeah. So this is, it happened in winter testing, uh, Barcelona at the time. He had a strange testing accident, like turn three in Spain, which is usually not a corner where drivers have problems. He mentioned that he entered, he spun toward the inside, which is really strange. He hit the inside wall. At, at a not so high speed and it's strange because there were only two g-force readings which is when the head hit one side of the cockpit and the other side of the cockpit and they don't know whether or not the impact was actually enough to where it could have concussed him of some sort because i don't know whether or not it was impact related people think that it's not impact that's the big mystery because obviously his symptoms were very, they're not abnormal for people that have concussions. It's called the, the fun part that I'll get into here is called retrograde amnesia, where as we've stated, he said that at the time there were reports saying that he didn't know who he was. He thought that he was in go-karts. He answered questions as to what year it was saying that it was the 1990s and that he hopes to get to F1. Um, I don't know whether or not those reports are valid, but it's very interesting because he did for sure have retrograde amnesia. They rolled out medical emergencies to cause the crash. McLaren said it was a, a quote-unquote gust of wind, but Alonzo himself said that not even a hurricane could have made the car do what it did, which is so strange. I just, I can't. I can't seem to crack the mystery. It doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever because there's no footage of the crash. Now, is this the is this the crash where he 
um, I guess went on the AstroTurf that was on the outside of that corner and, and hit the no. inside wall? No. no. So this is a completely different clash. Yeah, like he kind of he spun lazily midway through a corner and then hit the inside barrier, which I'm is wondering really strange. If, I'm wondering if he may have passed out or something. Yeah, that's the what car. they were thinking, but they ruled out. There was no evidence of electric shock, no epilepsy-related seizures, no medical emergency, which is so strange. You know, maybe he just did hit the wall after concussion. Maybe that, maybe the, maybe the answer to the mystery is boring, but you never know. Um, it's very fun to speculate because we—it's natural for us people to to have theories for what we aren't able to see. Well, I've, I've spoken previously about having uh, what I thought was a concussion a, a, a few years ago uh, when I was still uh, either in middle school or high school and, and not really being able to remember my childhood and stuff. And uh, I'm not sure that you would say that uh, it would be anything like retrograde memory loss, but uh, or excuse me, amnesia. But uh, I know sometimes I even have trouble um, today remembering something that happened 15, 20 minutes ago. Um, so I say that to say I've also been diagnosed with what's called vasovagal syncope, which is basically I faint any time I get uh, a certain threshold that's very small of, or more of, of pain. And I'm wondering because basically when you pass out, your blood pressure just drops and your brain loses blood and that's literally all it takes. Uh, if he's in that corner, and being that it's preseason testing, um, if his body's just not used to that at that moment, and he loses a little bit of blood to his brain, he passes out there. I could right. totally see him doing that. And if you're not, you know, cognitive at that point, and you hit the wall, even though it's at a slow pace, you're not bracing for impact. So there's no. Right telling how much of his you know how much his brain moved when he hit the wall this is the fun part i think for me because the report in the telemetry said that once he spun he braked with maximum force which takes about i would say it's about 300 pounds of pressure depending on how the brakes are set up to push down on the brake pedal to lock up completely and if he's passed out there's no way he could have hit the brakes at maximum force like that and they rolled out all sorts of medical conditions because if it was a heart condition, he would have needed a pacemaker. Um, if it was epilepsy, he couldn't have hit the brakes at all if he's had a seizure like that. Um, it doesn't. It, it's so strange because he's in very good shape, and I, I really don't know because there's so much to that that isn't explained. And that's why a lot of the fans think, okay, maybe he was electrocuted in this, this thing. But I don't, I don't know. I mean, he, he might have just hit the wall wrong and got a concussion. There's, that could be it because you would think that bracing for impact would actually be worse because it tenses up all your muscles. Right. And I guess that's the saying of why the drunk drivers always survive crashes because they're not bracing for impact. They're kind of just thrown around. Yeah, well, I'm not sure what happened. I mean, we look at the uh, Michigan crash with Dale Jr. that he got a concussion. It wasn't really that bad. So, I mean, who knows? Um, I, I don't know. Uh, that's not the only um, crash that we'll get to. Um, 
we've already had two, but there was another one that uh, you brought up in that thread. That was the Tony Rena. I think I'm saying that right. Indy mm-hmm. car test. Um, and you said there's no details to be found. And I, yeah. I didn't I find anything detail, when I, I was researching. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess if to give it a rundown to you, I'd probably say 2003 was an Indy test. It was very cold outside. So that, that could be a reason why it was controlled. Um, his car, according to the report, it spun 90 degrees to the left in the middle of turn three. So it was kind of, the rear end gearbox was completely facing down. Then it got air underneath it once it started skipping across the apron and the grass. It rotated another 30 degrees in the air when it was when it was spinning. And then they think that it hit the fencing post with the bottom of the tub, which is like right under the seat of the driver. And there's no protection there. Yeah, and it, it obviously it killed him instantly. They say this blunt force trauma. Nobody really knows exactly what his injuries were, other than just quote unquote blunt force trauma, which, which that can be anything because I, I'm not going to say what they were. Obviously, what I do know from talking to people that Dan Weldon's death was listed as blunt force trauma, and it was a lot more graphic than. Justin Wilson, whose cause of death was listed as the exact same thing. So, just because they say blunt force trauma, it doesn't rule out all sorts of visually concerning things, such as you know dismemberment, whatnot. And that that also brings another question up, because there's no pictures of the car after the crash. Was the tub actually intact? Because that same year, I think Kenny Brack crashed at Texas, and it was 214 Gs, yet the tub still stayed intact. So thinking of it that way, he must have really hit at a weird angle for, for the tub to actually get broken up. And if the tub was broken up, I can explain why they wouldn't want to report it, because they were people say that there were parts of the car under the grandstands in the grandstands because the stands were obviously damaged after the crash. Where he was, nobody knows because there was no footage, there was no pictures. Like where where did he end up? Because obviously, if we're talking like bad, bad to the point where if it was on TV, then it would have damaged the, the reputation of the series. My my theory is that they're covering it up because. It was probably graphic enough to where if it was on race day, it could have either hurt the fans or it would have looked bad enough on TV to where new fans wouldn't have wanted to watch after that. Right. And, and one of the comments on your Twitter thread was a uh, 1955 Le Mans style, mm-hmm. or I should say Le Mans-esque crash could have been possible. And I think, uh, I know Colton and I can probably comment on stuff like that with NASCAR yeah. events. Um, just because that's what we know. Um, we've seen stuff go into the fence. I know with the Carl Edwards, uh, Brad Keselowski, both of those wrecks, uh, I believe things went into the stands. Um, we've got the Allison crash at Talladega and the Kyle Larson at Daytona crash where, uh, things are in the stands, so that, that that didn't look good for NASCAR, but I don't think it really put anything backwards in as in right. regards to fan that's where, um, 
in yeah. involvement. One, right. yeah, one thing that I tie into this Tony Renner crash, because I did a little bit of research on this um, just a couple months ago, actually, when you posted the thread, um, was a lot of people, especially on Reddit, seem to have a little bit of insider information that the car went through the fence or under the fence to some degree. And it, it kind of, I mean, as gruesome as it is, almost shredded Tony in the car. And I tie that back to NASCAR in the mid-90s had an accident with a guy named Russell Phillips. Oh, um, yeah. He was an ARCA driver at the time. Flipped up roof first into the catch fence at Charlotte. And it actually tore the roof off of the car. And it shredded Russell in the grandstands. Almost like a cheese grater. And yeah. it was super, super gruesome stuff. I encourage you, do not look up anything on it because it is it is horrible yeah um, if you got a struck on it go ahead but yeah yeah i'm almost wondering if indycar saw this as an opportunity to kind of hide the truth mm. um yeah, because that's yeah art with that russell phillips crash it was during a race there was reporters everywhere um it was it was really hard to keep that one quiet um with the rena thing it was it was a lot easier to just sweep it under the rug and say oh he hit really hard he died sorry you know and that's kind of what I have always right. tied the two together with. My thought is the official autopsy report was actually not shown other than just cause of death, blunt force trauma. It didn't say, you know, there's dismemberment or revulsion, all that kind of stuff. It didn't say what exactly, what exact injuries he suffered, whether or not they were internal, external, whatever. But obviously, if the injuries to the driver were graphic enough to where they had to sweep it under the rug, then then I think it starts to make sense as to why there isn't any footage or isn't any um, further information beyond just guesses. Because right. they wouldn't want, as bad as it sounds, they wouldn't want, say, a quote, they wouldn't want debris in the stands. There's no way to phrase it that isn't, doesn't sound horrible, but that's all I can say. Yeah, well, I mean, if you see the debris in the stands on a test day, are you really going to want to go when there's multiple right. cars because on track? Because the grandstands were damaged. Like, there's no way around it that the railings at the very front rows of the grandstands were bent inward. And people say that if it hit bottom side first into the fence, that it punched a hole in the fence. Probably the engine gearbox bounced off the front of the grandstands. And who knows if the back of the tub actually split open because you're, you're talking about that. Then if the tub's compromised, then the driver's going to be exposed. And people, it's like a huge guess as to what actually happened to him, whether or not. Did he stay in the car? Did all of them stay in the car? Who knows? But if it was bad enough to where no one wants to say, no one in the know even wants to say anything, then it's, it's clearly much worse than anything we've ever seen in our times as racing fans because there were people on track forum Reddit saying that when the crash happened, they blocked off like this, the road behind turn three where the house is. Yeah. Yeah. And when you talk about the tub getting compromised, I mean, that, I mean, also ties back to the, the Dan Weldon crash. I remember when that happened and I was constantly following the news right after was when they finally, and it wasn't even IndyCar that released, it was just a random, you know, press mm -hmm. conference that had happened where they said, yeah, the, the catch fence actually went through the cockpit and hit Dan in the head. 
and so that's kind of i mean even at that they don't there's no mention of it with IndyCar at all, with any of the drivers. Yeah. It's only that one little press briefing with the doctors. Right. And so it's super well, easy to take something too. like Tony's wreck, and which could have been as – I mean, we can speculate on how gruesome it was easy enough to sweep it under the rug. Right. I would assume that it's probably worse than the Weldon one, visually speaking, because like you said, his, Weldon's head did hit the fence, but the tub – was fairly intact. It, obviously, the roll hood was ripped off, but the tub itself was in in okay shape. Not good shape, but for a crash that bad, it was in okay shape. And compare it to, say, previous catch fence incidents that happened. There's one in 2001 in Texas that I talked about yesterday on Twitter. There was one in 1996 at Indy. There was another one in an Indy Lights race at Homestead in 2007 where the front of the cockpit was actually ripped off by the fence, which exposed the driver's legs and did a lot of damage in, to their to their extremities to a huge extent. But obviously all of them, they still walked, their legs were saved. But if that happens to a different part of the tub and not the nose, then it's going to be a lot worse. Yeah, because the rest of the drivers, obviously, there. The good thing is, though, we are in 2021 – and I, I I feel like those days are mostly behind us. I'm not going to say that we won't see another severe injury or death in motorsport because anything can happen. But the safety of these cars, especially the open-wheel cars, are, are much better than even that of five years ago. We've got the Halo in Formula 1. We've got the windscreen now in IndyCar and the wheel tethers are are better. The suspension systems have been upgraded after the James Hinchcliffe crash. I mean, even in NASCAR, we see wrecks like Austin Dillon's and Ryan Newman's most recent crash at Daytona, where the catch finch is doing its job much better than it ever has before. So we don't have to worry about things getting thrown into the fans. And and even though we look at the 2015 crash uh, with Austin Dillon just disintegrating the catch fence, it did its job. Every bit of that car was contained in, in the racetrack. Right, and I think the big concern is debris because with the crash like Renaissance, it might not have been the whole car that got through the fence, but if the engine or the gearbox punched a hole through the fence and shot debris into the handicap rails of the grandstands, which they say that was the area that was damaged, which is like a wheelchair platform for people to watch the race, kind of toward the front of turn three. And the railings were like bent, like scraped everything. It was more than just grazed, like something something hit it hard. And I think that's the thing the fences, even if the car's contained, there are still parts and pieces that can go over it or it can go through it. Because if you look at the Wiccans crash from Pocono three years ago, take a few replays to notice it one of his tires actually flew out of the track through the catch fence and no one knows where it went like i don't know if it went in the forest somewhere but that tire was gone and thankfully pocono doesn't have any grandstands or camping over there so nothing happened. yeah that would have been bad but even like a, a piece of carbon fiber or a screw could turn into a, a, yeah, like a throwing you. knife or a bullet if if it's going fast enough so um I'm just glad that it seems to be like we're containing parts better um, with these with these 
catch fences nowadays. Uh, anything can happen, but I feel like being where we are and being where the next gens of all of these series are going, I think most of the worst days are behind us, and I doubt we'll have another one of those bad days anytime soon. Uh, and, and if I'm wrong, which I hope I'm not, uh, I'll go ahead and apologize in advance. But um, we've progressed from back injuries to concussions to uh, fatal accidents. So let's lightheartedly uh, steer this discussion in a different direction. And this is probably one of the biggest mysteries uh, to date uh, that happened uh, a little bit under 40 years ago. And that was 1982 at Talladega. A driver named L.W. Wright is in the race and he shows up and races for about 13 laps before his engine expires and he comes to Nashville the next week and he's never heard of again after he fails to qualify the race. Uh, so um, I'll let you guys start the conversation off and we'll, we'll, we'll steer it back my way because I did some pretty good research uh, into this topic. Yeah, this is definitely one of the cooler mysteries in racing because there's so much like legend around it to where people on Twitter I see, I think NASCAR man history might have been a guy. Like they're selling t-shirts of LW Wright and a lot of historians for racing that are into that kind of stuff, they've they love they love to, to listen to the story and so do we because it's so it's amazing how somebody can cop his way into a race and then disappear without a trace afterwards. It, that's just I have no idea how he pulled it off, but whatever he did, he was really good at, he was obviously very good at what he did, which was conning people. Yeah, and and what you're kind of alluding to is he was kind of known for conning people. Most, uh, I guess, well-known uh, is that he took about $20,700 from Sterling Marlin uh, to buy a car, and the checks bounced the Sunday after the Talladega race, so that never, or I should say the Monday after the Talladega race, so uh, Sterling Martin with Crota was, was saying, I figured that was going to happen uh, because that character didn't look uh, too nice. And then apparently uh, NASCAR and Goodyear uh, had him, uh, or were looking for him because... He owed NASCAR fifteen hundred dollars and Goodyear some some money for some other unpaid bills, um, but it it's an it's an interesting story to say the least. Um, I'll kind of get into it later, but I mean, just f from first thoughts, from everything you guys know um, prior to today and the lore around this story, I mean, like Colton, when when you heard of L. W. Wright the first time. Um, what would you thinking, uh, do you think this is kind of funny or is this, is this something just for the NASCAR legends that we can look back to as being odd history, I guess? Probably a combination of the both. I mean, I think it's almost the perfect crime. I mean, if you can get away with it, especially in that time, you know, with NASCAR, um, you could just go up and rent a car and as long as you kind of said your words right, they would, they would let you on the track. And so I think that's just kind of you know, the perfect example of um, using the system to your advantage. I mean, I don't know if it was just some dude who wanted a hot lap around the track a couple times or who wanted the money. Um, it was definitely interesting, and I tried to look into it a little bit, and 
I, I obviously ended up at dead ends everywhere I tried to look at who this guy was. Um, but super, super interesting to learn about. And it's definitely one that I'll, I kind of tell people every time they ask about weird NASCAR facts. Well, something interesting is I, I went a little bit into into the, I guess, news around this from 1982 because everything that I could find modernly was just kind of the same sort of thing. He owed Sterling Marlin some money. Uh, he showed up at Talladega. He qualified on Saturday because he was a second-round qualifier. He got in the show. Uh, he raced 13 laps, engine blows. He shows up to Nashville, doesn't qualify, never heard of again. And that's, that's it. So I kind of got more into it and... Uh, I noticed that he had told Sterling Marlin that he was good for the money uh, because his race team, the uh, Music City Racing, uh, straight out of Nashville, was uh, to be sponsored by singer T.G. Shepard. Um, but when asked about it the week after Talladega, T.G. Shepard uh, said that he wasn't affiliated with him and interestingly enough when sterling asked about the money at talladega there was some backpedaling from lw Wright, and he said it was actually uh, a premature deal and it was more likely going to be merle haggard and i don't know if you guys know who that is but um he was yeah that's a big name <laughs> to throw out there <laughs> He was a very uh, legendary uh, musician at the time, and and even even now. Um, so so everything seemed right, but I, I guess Sterling Marlin, being the NASCAR man that was kind of conned, uh, he he felt like something was up the whole time. Yeah, that was really strange to me. Um, I think that obviously that was out there. It almost feels like he was going to the bank to pitch a loan like we would you know he's he's saying stuff that never happened because he wants people to give him money and i think it was the same principle to where it's like lying on your resume pretty much he said a bunch of stuff that sounded believable and it turns out to be completely false yeah and i i don't know how much further there is to go into this rabbit hole um as far as the LW right, this may be one of those things like the DB Cooper case where we just never really know and it's always a mystery, but it's definitely fun to talk about and speculate um, and sit and wonder, you know, who, who done it? Well, actually, who done it might be something that we could probably crack down on. Now, I don't know if people have found an article, uh, this article that I've seen before but it was very interesting as it listed a couple facts that i could not back up um so if you go to racing references page which has an extensive archive of everything and you look up lw right he has one start and apparently the music city racing team and from what i infer from the wording of this article from 1982 their driver lw right had raced in 44 races in Winston Cup prior to the Talladega race. Uh, or I should say prior to the Nashville race. So this would have been their 45th start. So my question to you guys is, when I look at this and see that, where are those stats? 
because obviously something's not right here. I th I think something's up because I'm going to trust something that's a time period piece over a modern website. I think the weird part with him is that it's hard to assume that he was someone on racing records because with how shady his background is, he might not have ever raced anything in his life before then. So I just don't. I don't know. We don't know yeah, his real name, like so you never know. He could have been driving his whole life. would have recognized him and known him um, and been able to hunt their money down, you know, um, being that it's such a big story that right. he ran off with all this money and, you know, whatever he owned. Um, it leads me more to believe that he wasn't racing under another name or maybe, you know, he went under his brother's name or his cousin's name or some random dude's name. Who just so happen to have those starts who no one else remembered. Now, it's interesting that you say that, uh, Colton, because uh, the same article uh, that I found um, that stated that the team or he had 43 races prior to, to Dega making that the 44th race um, actually mentioned some names that were affiliated with the team. Uh, most notably, the two licensees uh, with NASCAR as as having driver's licenses with the sport, uh, were Lloyd Barber and Rick Wright. Now, if you look at Rick Wright and you could say, well, maybe this guy showed up and said his name was LW, and he's the same guy that conned Stewart out of the money and conned a, a Nashville businessman um, out of the money, uh, which was around $40,000 weeks prior. So, uh, to me, all of this stuff happens around the same time, with the same person under the same alias, and then we can't find him. So you could say, well, uh, maybe he picked up Wright from Rick Wright and L and just added another W to it and like that. And I get it. But I looked up the names Rick Wright, Got Nothing, and Lloyd Barber and Nashville, Tennessee, where the, where the team was based out of, and I found two hits for a... Lloyd E. Barber and a Lloyd S. Barber, who are within the range of 60 to 80 plus, and I was really hoping that maybe in the future I can contact them and try and see if they are affiliated with this Music City Racing Team, and maybe we can probably get to the bottom of this. So, what do you guys think of that, and do you think that's even a rabbit hole that should be opened up? I absolutely think it should be opened up, because... Like anything, once you get a question, you want an answer, and it, it, it doesn't stop. Once, you're, once your curiosity is peaked, there's nothing you can do about it. So yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's definitely at least worth a call, um, but I don't know how likely it is that you're going to get some 70, 80-year-old guy on the phone that just gets this random call and says, yeah, I'm L.W. Wright, or I know him, or anything like that. It's definitely worth yeah, it's not, looking into. Yeah, yeah because to I mean... It maybe they could lead us to Peter, who knows Paul, who, you know, worked on LW's car or something along those lines. You know, I mean, like you said, we don't know how far this rabbit hole goes. Right, and the and the the article also gave other members of the crew that we could look look for in uh, databases and stuff like that for maybe stuff like are there death certificates? Did they have records of moving or something? And um, and there's actually a, a st substantial list, I'd say, about seven names that, that I want to kind of look into um, and and maybe make this uh, something that we come back to in a couple months 
after a little bit of personal um, team research, um, I think this is one mystery that might not stand the test of time because I think we're three pretty determined dudes. I think it's a great idea. Do a follow-up on it here in a couple months and see what yeah, we find. Yeah, I'm down. Yeah. yeah so I'll, I'll just say this, listeners. Um, you woke up a beast by... Uh, by uh kind of putting our our sniffing noses uh to to LW right Nathan so I'll tell the listeners that uh we've we've got our scent and we're going to follow it <laughs> so um this episode has been pretty fun so far um really we've kind of listed off most of the stuff that I had I know Nathan uh you've looked into a little bit uh more stuff and and Colton you might have some more uh mysteries from from your part of the country. So if, if you guys have anything else to add, uh, go ahead and let, let's talk about it. Yeah. So um, with that being said, I think one of the more interesting ones that I'm kind of new to is Mario Rossi, who was an engine builder and mechanic in the sixties and seventies for NASCAR. And in 1983, he basically mysteriously vanished without a trace. He's never been found again. People think that he's in a witness protection program. That's one of the main theories because obviously several drivers back then were um, involved with smuggling notable short track drivers. Yeah, Gary Ballou and the like. So, yep, I think that either that happened um, or something something shady just happened to him because his, he got a call from, his, his wife got a call from somebody saying that he had been killed in a plane crash in the office. Problem is there was no plane and he wasn't there, so... The plane that he supposedly crashed was sold another three times after that. So it was obviously in perfect condition. So it it doesn't add up because he was clearly being told the family was clearly being told false information by somebody. Yeah, that's interesting. I'd actually uh, never heard of that. Uh, it's 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 really interesting. You know, you hear about people just disappearing, but when it's someone who you know has, I guess, regional or national attention. Um, you kind of know what's going on because there's always someone keeping tabs on them. So, well, for for people to disappear that are more synonymous to regional or national household names, like uh, it, it's interesting uh, because how does something happen to someone with no variety? I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Like it's so these stories are so intriguing. Mm-hmm. And I wish I would have came up with the Rossi thing earlier because now that now that I want to find more about him and everything that I look is a dead end. So we might honestly need more than one episode. So speaking on more than one episode, I've got another one we can look into. Um, I'm going back in your thread, and there's a guy by the name of Asteroid. It's at Asteroid NASCAR, and I kind of want to read this off here because when I was skimming through it, this really caught my attention. Um says there was a guy who worked in NASCAR, either as a manager or designer. He worked around NASCAR, and he was starting his own group, and he was hit and killed in a parking lot, and the killer or person who hired him were never found. And his name was Billy Crump. He worked at Hendrick Sportswear, but he decided to leave oh. Hendrick and create his own company. And a lot of drivers and teams were planning on following him, but then once he was hit and killed, NASCAR swept him under the rug. And I've never once heard about this. Um, Me either. It said... It, it, this guy says it was a rumor that Hendrick had him killed because he was going to talk on Hendrick's tax evasion and other illegal things, which were huge 
kind of buzzes around the garage at that time. Um, I don't necessarily think that Hendrick would have paid this guy off to kill him, but it's something to speculate. Like I said, I've never even heard of this guy, so this is something that I'm going to kind of dig into and keep you all posted on Twitter of what I find. And you know, this is this is weird. Yeah, it's a very strange story. I've heard of it before, but I didn't really look into it. So I don't know as much as you do about this case. But it's it wouldn't necessarily surprise me, but then again, it would surprise me because Rick Hendrick doesn't seem like that kind of guy. But, well, and then but that's the same for many businessmen because a lot of businessmen are very shady. Yeah, and, and you put you it look at that. it recently. James Finch just got just got charged with a bunch of things, and he's getting accused of all sorts of shady things. I'll, I'll restart that whole thing. Yeah, it looks like we've all three got pretty much a project to look at for the next couple of months, and. Uh, a couple of them came from uh, guys on Twitter, so thank you, Keith and Asteroid, for for kind of adding to our conversation today. I hope that everyone listening uh, will join in on this conversation or others uh, for later on. Uh, you can you can tweet us at Fanfield Podcast, capital F, capital F, capital P, and then the number one um, to join in the conversation because this has been a really good conversation so far, and. Um, the three of us have also talked about uh, basically one of the biggest ones that has kind of always just been a rumor to, to me personally, and that is the last lap of the 2001 Daytona 500. And uh, Colton, I know you probably have stronger opinions and more information than, than Nathan and I, so I'll let you go ahead and start. Yeah, so, I mean, the big speculation here is whether or not Dale Earnhardt's seatbelts broke. Um, my parents were watching this race live, as was I. I'm a little young to remember it. Um, but they are of, I mean, they are dead set on his seatbelts broke. And then now that I'm kind of researching into it, I don't know that they did. And this is a huge debate between NASCAR and Simpson and, you know, the autopsy and the safety workers that go out. So I'm really interested to see if any more information ever does come up. Um, it's, it's really interesting to hear the sides of the safety workers who say his seatbelt was broken when he got there, and then you look at the NASCAR safety folks that say, no, it was cut by the safety workers, um, and they're specifically talking about the left lap belt. Um, so they're saying that when he hit, his left hip actually broke out of the belt. And so, that's kind of one of the things that sent an him interesting, in. An interesting rumor that has been told to me uh, multiple occasions by uh, specifically my grandfather and uh, my fiance's father, um, who are both really big Dale Earnhardt senior fans is that the prevailing theory when this happened was that Dale Earnhardt was known to carry a pocket knife in that side of his fire suit. And I know a lot of fans might not realize this, but fire suits have pockets. So if you, if you are in the garage, um, you can get a, a driver to sign an autograph. Well, if you don't have a Sharpie, most of the drivers carry some in their pockets. Well, apparently Dale Earnhardt senior carries one in his pocket. Uh, most of these races and he had been known prior to this incident that if his belts were too tight, he was so uncomfortable and he couldn't loosen them with the straps themselves. He would cut He would cut one of them uh, to be more comfortable in the car. So I don't know if you guys had heard that rumor at all yet. No, I haven't I heard, never heard that. Yeah, I haven't heard that one, but I've definitely heard from multiple sources that Earnhardt was known, especially later in the race, to loosen his belts. Um, mm -hmm. just to kind of get up on the wheel a little bit more and move around in the car like he'd like to do. 
And that's something that I've heard from reports of safety workers was when they got in, he was kind of slumped down in the seat and they could, I mean, they could move his belts around pretty freely. Um, so I don't, it's definitely something to look into. Yeah, I definitely look into that too, because it seems, I don't want to be an person to assume these kind of things, but it definitely seems likely given that um, he, if you look at pictures from him driving in the 70s, the late 70s, early 80s, before he drove the three, look at his head placement in the corners. Like he is completely leaned all the way over to one direction. And like you think his head is sticking out of the window now. Like that's how far over he was leaned. So obviously he had a very unique position that he liked when he was driving, so it wouldn't surprise him. And as safety got more strenuous that that is virtually impossible today. So yeah. I can see where you're coming from, Nathan. I mean, um, especially older people, uh, not even just race car drivers, they're kind of set in their ways. So I could see where where a lot of these issues lead to something. But, I mean, had he crashed in, in that same regard with a Hans device on, I don't, I don't think that he's in any trouble. Yeah. Um, and I don't, and the same thing with a safer barrier. Now I know that there's the whole ordeal. Well, he got hit in the side once he hit the wall by the 36 or the 40 car, but, um, that was not the, the hit that did the damage. Yeah. So I, I, I don't, I don't know. Um, the best thing I can say is thank God for the Hans device, uh, now, because uh, snapping someone's neck is virtually impossible now. Um, I don't know. I mean, we, we're going to have to do our homework. Um, uh, we're going to have to come to the bottom of these things. Um, but with that, I think we should move uh, on to our race preview for this weekend. Uh, no IndyCar racing, no Formula One car racing. So we go to Talladega, and that's one of the fans favorite events kind of a crown jewel but it's debatable on whether the crown jewel is this race or the fall race and if you ask different people it's not a crown jewel uh but it's a very important race for the next segment of the season as far as ratings go and fan involvement so what are you guys looking forward to as we go to the longest track in nascar um i'm looking forward I'm not gonna. I'm gonna sound so bad for saying this, but I'm gonna look forward to chaos because it's those are like the four races per year where you kind of don't know what to expect. So I'm hoping that we get a lot of unexpected things because I think I'm a purist. I like long run racing spread out, but every few times a year I do like to have a little bit of fun. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put an asterisk there. It's the longest oval in NASCAR because now we got Coda and the Daytona Road Course. Which ah, you caught my error. Good ah. job. Look at that. Nah. <laughs> um, so I'm so used to saying that, but we've got those two tracks now. So you caught my error. See, yeah. this is why this is why we get uh, Colton on here because he's listening all the time. He's gonna call us out on our bullshit. Um, looks like he's done that three <laughs> times tonight alone, right. but <laughs> for me at least. Yeah, I'm I'm stoked for it, mostly because my guy Blaney does so good at Talladega. Um, fun fact, he is actually undefeated at Monday Talladega races, so silently I'm hoping this race gets rained out. Um, but I'm stoked for Dega. It's my favorite track. Um, I've mentioned to you guys, I went there in 2019 when it rained out. Blaney won. I had to listen to him win on the way home back to Wyoming. Um, 
I'm stoked for it. I'm going to have people over for the race and we're going to be, we're going to be hanging out all day. It's, it's going to be fun regardless of what happens. Even if we have another shitty situation with Hamlin winning by going the, below the yellow line. Yeah. Right yeah. Oh. Um, whatever. <laughs> he, he, he took a loop. He saw a loophole. He took advantage of it. There, I, I'm not going to complain about my driver winning. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Yellow round rule doesn't need to exist. So, hey, end of story. There we go. And last year, Blaney punted two guys out of the way to get the win, and I'm not sitting here bitching about that one. So I get it, Nate. Yeah, exactly. Halladay is the hallowed grounds. We we do whatever the hell we want to win, um, and and, that, and that's always been the case there, and and to a little bit lesser extent Daytona. So I'm excited. I I still think that chaos uh can can lead to some of the most boring races in in nascar like the daytona 500 this yeah, year that's true but hopefully we get a good mix of wrecking and racing because i love this package and i'm gonna hate to see it go because we've only got three races left with it yeah i'm hoping the team orders don't come into effect too much and playing too safe if that makes sense yeah, and even to that, I don't think that team orders have been as – I mean, they've, they've still been just as strict, but I don't think drivers follow them quite near as much as they used to. Um, we really saw them come out with a tandem draft, and then drivers would stick, I mean, almost exclusively to them. Um, more recent years, we've seen drivers jostling around, and as long as they get up front, they don't really care who they work with. So I'm stoked about that. Yeah, yeah well, it goes here. based on the personality of the driver. I know Denny Hamlin's going to work with whoever Denny Hamlin can because Denny Hamlin's going to win uh, a speedway race because that's what Denny Hamlin does. And um, we see guys like the Penske guys or the Stuart Haas guys always kind of lay in together, and I'm I, I'm not a big fan of that. So the guys like the 11 and the 22 are are, are ones that we're, we're going to be appreciative of until they wreck the whole field. Oh, really? Yeah. It's going to be a good race, though. Yeah, I'm hoping that the guys that are more willing to work with whoever gives them the best chance of winning the race, not just whatever manufacturer the guy in front of them is, because that's where I draw the line. I think that drivers should be working with whoever's around them, whoever gives them a chance to win the race, not not be handcuffed and forced to work for a manufacturer. Either way, I'm stoked for Dega. Um, make sure y'all root on that number 12 car this weekend. Blaney's going to make it. Well, I mean, my fiance's favorite driver is Ryan Blaney, so I kind of have to go with it. And he's also a metalhead like me. So, of course, I'm going to be uh, rooting for Ryan Blaney. So you don't have an, any problem with that. Uh, but you better be rooting just as hard for the FedEx Camry as, as, yeah, that's what as I'm I saying. will be for the, for the 12. That's exactly what I'm saying. He needs a win. This year has been far too good to not have a win, and I really do hope he wins because he would – I don't know any driver that's ever had nine top fives in the first ten races if he does pull off a win because it would clearly – it would be history. Some people don't like that history, but I do because I'm heavily biased because my driver. So. Well, with that being said, um, Nathan – you are once again um, on top of the leaderboard when it comes to picks. You are officially kicking our ass. Um, so you scored two points with the win um, this past week. Colton come on strong and finished second ahead of me with one point. 
And then I got zero points. So the leaderboard for picks now comes out to Nathan with eight, Colton with one, and myself with two. So, Colton, we got to do something. Maybe you and I should just be together on our picks, um, and, and we can say it's eight to three. I don't know if Nathan will like that or not, though. So I have a question as far as because I'm, I just jumped in last week. Can I pick the same driver oh, yeah. multiple weeks? Yes, yes that is the one thing that we do differently than a bunch of these um, boards is is you can pick um, anyone that you want, period. So um, you're just trying to get the race winner. And you'll have to pick after me, though, uh, because I didn't get any points. So you'll pick second, Nathan will pick last. And we might want to start putting some um, some penalties on him since he's so far ahead, but... I don't know. No, that's no, that's, 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 his driver that's, finishes a lap down. He loses two. That's that's uh, you guys are following NASCAR. You don't want to be like that. <laughs> can we, can we, wait a minute? Can we can we can we multiply that per lap? So if his driver finishes like thirty four laps down because he, yeah, we need a double points week or something here, Alex. I, I don't know. Maybe we we can do that. Um, uh, let's we can probably do that. Let's do that for the Coke Six Hundred. It's the longest race of the year. Right. Let's uh let's do that. Let's let's do that. Uh, we can do something like we pick two drivers and your best driver gets you the double points or something like that. We'll we'll come up with something because we're probably gonna need it. because uh, we need a handicap against Nate with eight points. Um, but anyhow, I'm gonna not shoot myself in the foot as a Hamlin fan, and I'm gonna go ahead and, and pick uh pick your favorite driver uh there, Colton. Uh, I I think Blaney can get it done again at Dega. I'm that, that's fine. You pick him because I was actually going to go with a different driver. I'm rooting for Blaney, but I'm thinking with my head here, and I'm going to pick the driver that I hate the most. You know, F the 47 Ricky Shithouse is going to be my guy this weekend. I think he's going to have one of the best finishes. He's super good at the restrictor plates. Um, as much as I hate to see him do well, I'm going to have to pick him. Ah, oh, that's passionate. Very passionate, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, and for a while, my Twitter followers will know this. Um, my cover photo on Twitter was a picture of me flipping off Stenhouse's car at Talladega. <laughs> oh wow! I knew you didn't like Stenhouse, but that's yeah. You're maybe really I'll maybe I'll like switch me. it this week just to just to show my hatred. But Stenhouse is my pick. I mean, you're hesitating, Nathan. You're not going to pick. You know, let us get our points and uh, no, and do that. No, there's so um, many guys to pick from. I'm Nate's thinking. The pace I was card. at first. I was thinking Kurt Busch because he's finished top ten in however many last few spring races in a row. But honestly, I'm going to go with a little bit of a wild card here. I'll go Eric Jones because he he doesn't run up front a lot in the speedway races, but he does he does have a knack for being one of the guys that. When the field, if the field does crash, he always sort of takes advantage of it. Like he rarely doesn't capitalize when the field gets caught up in crashes. So I think that if a crash does happen and he makes it through, he'll be up there because he was he was top three in both of the last Talladega races. So I could honestly see him sort of just pulling a rabbit out of the hat. You know, if the field doesn't crash, maybe not. But if the field crashes, then I think he'll be. He's not you see, this is this is exactly why you and I are losing, Colton. I know you've only picked once, but we're going for broke, just like you did last week with the 19. 
Nathan's over here picking sensible picks. So I think we might need to institute something where we can't pick the same driver twice in the regular season going forward. Because no, no, no. He's yeah, probably going to beat us on that because Eric Jones is safe. So uh, I think idea. it's going to be a struggle. I don't think Eric Jones is safe. I mean, he re- he got caught up in the 500. He got taken out. So like, Everybody got caught up in the 500, though. Everybody got caught up in the 500. Yeah, that's though. what I'm I mean, saying. I'm thinking, that, I'm thinking that if he makes it through a wreck, if they do wreck, then – and he makes it through, then he'll be the shot. But if if he gets taken out, or if they don't wreck it all, that's why it's, that's why it's sort of a gamble for me. Because there were like three or four gamble guys I was thinking kicking, and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to Eric Jones just because it's going to be one of his best chances to win all year. I want to point out here, Nate, you picked Kurt Busch, and I, I'm going to side with Alex. We do need to limit the 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 driver picking as much. Um, but Kurt Busch's average finish at Talladega is just about 16th. And I'm looking through his stats now. He has finished outside of the top 30 almost more times than he's finished in the top 10. Oh, yeah. I, that's why it's a gamble. But that being said, is that he runs up front in speedway races. He's good at speedway racing. He just doesn't have it a lot. Hey, McDowell did too, and he's only got one of them. Yeah, exactly. And that's all you need. And uh, Nathan's probably going to go even farther ahead of us here um hopefully i can get myself a point otherwise you're going to catch up to me colton um so i guess we'll just battle for last the rest of the year if that's what it takes um but i want to thank everybody for listening uh as always guys this was fun so thanks for being a part of this project and i look forward to the rest of the year talking to you guys uh but with that being said like i said earlier in the show Join in on the fun, uh, and I'll thank again Keith and Asteroid for for chiming in on the Mysteries and Racing thread that Nathan posted. Uh, let's get a little bit more of that going on. We we want to put some fan interaction on, on the podcast. We want to get you guys on here to record with us uh, one of these Wednesday sessions that we do. Um, and, uh, yeah, so follow us at, at FanFuel Podcast on Twitter. That's a capital... F capital F capital P tag a number one on the end and uh, thanks for for listening tonight. And I will I will tag this on one one step further here to get some fan interaction. If y'all listening to this can quote me on Twitter and say Talladega, I will buy you a one sixty fourth diecast of your choice. You heard that guys. So if you don't know Colton's Twitter handle, it's at Cranmore Colton and. Yep quote talladega uh tag the podcast in it as well so that nathan and i can see it and uh he's gonna buy you a 164 scale diecast and before we leave i do want to wish nathan a happy 19th birthday uh that'll be a couple days from now uh maybe have already passed by the time that you guys are listening to this his birthday is saturday so hopefully his favorite xfinity driver will win but yeah uh go ahead and give you an early happy birthday nate Yep, I'll take anything I can get at this point. <laughs> but I will take, um, it's like, hey, man, you want to wish me happy birthday? Why don't you uh, slide me some money? <laughs> okay, uh, so uh, get, in the, get in the private messages on Twitter at B1GNate underscore 11 and uh, send this man some birthday wishes. Send him a couple bucks. Um, he's turning uh, 19, so I don't know. Send him like 19 pennies in the mail.
you're going to have to add a lot more zeros after that. <laughs> I think for your birthday, Nate, you're going to lose 19 points. Oh, I don't like that because I'm turning 26 this year. Does that mean Ooh, that wow. come around Charlotte, I'm going to lose 26 points? I don't like that. Come on now, Colton. Uh, hey, I'm, I'm trying to help us out here. It's not going to help me out later. <laughs> uh, well, happy birthday, Nate. Yeah, thank you. All right, guys. Well, go go on and wish him a birthday on Twitter um, Let to let us know that you're actually listening this far into the podcast. And uh, you know our Twitter handle, so uh, do that and join in on the conversation. Uh, give us a question or a comment about racing in general, and we'll feature you on the podcast next time. Uh, and we will see you then. Thanks.